The title of my message this morning is My Father's Business. We are heading into one of the most criticized and debated portions of all of the Gospels in their entireties. It is not due to what is stated in the text that is greatly criticized and debated. It is due to the fact of what's not stated in the text that is greatly debated and criticized by higher critics. This morning we come to the only passage in Scripture that is given to us about the adolescence of Jesus Christ. Today we are going to read about him at 12 years old. And there is a gap in the narratives of the Gospels, and this is one of the fills that we have in those gaps. But it is a very, very small fill, to say the least. And because of what is not stated, it has drawn much speculation, conjecture, and criticism. There have been so many books written about the adolescence of Jesus Christ that they are too numerous to name or to count, and they contained 99% speculation and conjecture, all the way from events such as Jesus when he was a carpenter as a little boy, training up with Joseph, found a little bird that flew and got hurt and hurt its wings, and Jesus grabbed the bird and touched the bird and, and healed its wing, and the bird went about and went off and flew into a patio window and died. No, um, just craziness. We have no biblical authority for any such account. Uh, they are found in works that were written much later, uh, two, three, four hundred years later. But that particular account isn't found anywhere. But again, it is speculated that that's an event that occurred in Jesus' life. We have no idea. Uh, it's not recorded for us anyways. And so something like that we have to take as fiction. But when we begin to approach a passage with the bias of looking to criticize it, and I mean that in the manner of evaluating it and developing it and allowing it to um, uh, reveal to us what God would have it revealed to us, and, they're, they're, and then looking for holes in the narrative to begin to speculate and to uh, plug in with uh, conjecture, when higher criticism is applied to these type of passages, all different kinds of conclusions are rendered. Instead of just reading it for face value. To understand what it means to be in my father's house, to be about my father's business, is truly the directive of this particular text. This is what Luke is intending us to know in and to understand. Being about my father's business is one way to interpret, or I should say translate, the Greek text. A more preferable way would be in my father's house. Now, that being said, we are dealing with a Greek idiom. And whenever you come to idioms in the Bible, translation always becomes very difficult. And yet, when we come to a translation difficulty... We often then draw conclusions based upon our own understanding of what it means to be in my father's business or in my father's house. Those are two of probably the most classic English interpretations 
of the passage, verse 49, that we're going to look at in just a minute. But what does it mean to be in the Lord's business, to be in the Father's house? How is this idiom meant to be received and understood by the original reader? That's what we're going to get at today. Because I'm going to say to you, it'll probably surprise you what Jesus is actually saying here within our text to his mom and dad who are amazed because at 12 years old they find him in the temple listening to the teaching of the teachers there in the temple, asking questions, responding to their questions, and so forth. And as a result, they are astonished. Joseph and Mary are astonished by this and therefore approach Jesus. Now, what we need to understand is that Joseph and Mary begin this whole narrative by misplacing Jesus. They lost him. Before we're too hard on them, we have to understand why he was misplaced in their travels and so forth. But I want to come to you today with this little preface before we begin. There is so much conjecture placed upon these type of passages. You know, what is it like to grow up with Jesus as a brother? You know, he's always right, we're always wrong. You know, and we can throw all these kind of creative ideas at you and and kind of give you a back narrative or a background that you maybe contextualize some of this in. But we really don't know, do we? There is a mystery here. We don't know what it was like to grow up with Jesus as the oldest son of many. We don't know what it was like to observe his relationship between Mary and Joseph, though we find here in our text that he submitted himself to their authority as his parents. We don't know what he was like as a small child and what he knew and when he knew it. We don't know exactly you know, we don't, we don't understand this incredible mystery of God coming down like a, in the form of a human and being human and being God all at the exact same time. This hyperstatic union. We don't know what this all looks like and all means. So we can speculate. We can layer it with conjecture if it helps us. But that often has a tendency then to skew what is actually there. And then we read it differently. You know, for example, for years, decades, this particular scene in which we are going to read in just a moment was interpreted as Jesus standing in the midst of the religious leaders at 12 years old, and he's rebuking them and correcting them for their errors in their personal theology. That's not what it says at all. We superimpose that. They did at that time. But that's not what it says here. It's not what it happened. I don't believe Jesus interacted with the religious leaders in that way at 12 years old. I don't believe he was disrespectful at that moment to them at 12 years old. Even Paul, when he realized that he had criticized the high priest, he apologized in the book of Acts. There was a degree of respect for those who are in authority. But the tonality that we carry in, if we have that type of understanding into this passage, completely changes the narrative. It completely blinds us, I think, from seeing what is actually there. So we begin. Twelve years have passed since the last time we have uh, joined Luke. 
They have returned to Nazareth in verses 39 through 40. It says there in verse 40, Jesus, the child, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem, verse 41. Twelve years have now passed between verses 40 and 41. Every, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents did not know it, but supposing him to be with the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple. Let's just stop there. The Jewish people traveled from the different regions around Jerusalem to Jerusalem three times a year for Passover, for the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. If they were incapable of making all three feasts, the Feast of Passover was the one that they often kept, and it seems that that is the case with Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph from Nazareth would travel 80 miles to Jerusalem one way, And as a result, they would make their customary trip once a year to Jerusalem for the Passover. In this particular case, Luke brings us to the events of the 12th venture to the city of Jerusalem on Passover, for Jesus is now 12 years old. In that culture, it wasn't until the age of 13 that a young man was required to submit himself to the authority of the law and therefore being personally accountable to the law of Moses. So Luke directs us to the year prior to that to demonstrate that Jesus already knew who he was. And as he makes his way there, the traveling would be done from Nazareth to Jerusalem in a caravan. It would be everyone from Nazareth traveling together, often grouped together by families, or by age groups. The women would actually go first, and then the men would stay behind, sometimes a day, have a cup of coffee. And then they would travel. And in between the men and the women would be the kids, they would go, usually shortly after the mothers left. And hopefully, by the time everyone got there, the men were hoping that the women would have the tent set up and the dinner on the table and so forth. And when they got there, they were ready to go. That's actually what happened. They traveled in caravans and they did so for their personal safety. It deterred them from being robbed along the way. It deterred them from being taken advantage of or even hassled by the Romans if the Romans were to see a large caravan of people traveling, women, children, and so forth. They would uh, often just let it go and uh, not bother it in any way. And the same was true at the eighth day of the, the Passover feast because there was Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread took place just after that. So eight days in total, the caravan would then leave and head back 
to Nazareth. And so it's easy to see how amongst the many people traveling, Jesus at 12, you know, his mom and dad said, oh, you know, he's, with, he's with Aunt, uh, Aunt Ida up there in the front, you know, or he's back with his cousins, or he's with someone else. And, and you can understand, but after a day's journey, they understood now and finally realized that he was not with them. They looked for him, turned around, as a day's journey out, another day back, and then on the third day, they found him sitting in the temple. And that brings us to where we are in our text to truly discover the purpose of why Luke included this in his gospel. And in verse 48, I'm sorry, verse 46. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. During Passover, the most prominent teachers in Jerusalem would come out into the temple courts. Now, this is the areas in which the people gathered for the worship and the prayers to the Lord the courts around the temple proper, the temple building itself. It was in the courts that these uh, people would gather for prayers and for worship. But at Passover, the religious leaders, the most prominent teachers in Jerusalem, would go into those courts and make themselves available for learning and for discussing and for instruction. It was the only time of the year that individuals, common individuals, had access to these incredible teachers, such as Gamaliel, who we read about in the book of Acts, one of the foremost prominent teachers there in Jerusalem at that time. And it appears that Jesus is sitting in the midst of these. Now, it appears that they are in like a half circle of some sort, and Jesus is sitting in the middle, listening to their teaching, And the teaching was based on a formula that I love, and that is questions and answers. People would ask questions, the uh, religious leaders would answer those questions, and learning would take place as a result. And again, think of having an opportunity to sit down with your favorite pastor uh, or your favorite you know, professor or your whoever it may be that you don't have access to during the course of the entire year. And just being able to pick their brain a little bit, you know, asking them theological questions about God, about Messiah, about all these different things. And this is what Jesus was doing. He was there at 12 years old, which he was allowed to do because at 12 he could enter the temple, but it wasn't until 13 that he became responsible to the uh, design and the parameters of the law of the Mosaic Covenant. But he could come in there now and he could talk with them and that's what's taking place here. And we're going to discover they were astonished by his wisdom, by his knowledge, and it appeared that they were both learning in the course of the conversation. And this is why I don't believe that Jesus is rebuking them at 12 years old. I believe that it is one of those things that is naturally taking place there. And it seems like it's a cordial dialogue and it's a questions and answer period between him and them. And as a result, they were learning. And as his parents found him there, notice with me, 
In verse 46, after three days, they found him among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. At 12 years old, Jesus had insight that continued through the duration of his entire ministry. When Jesus was challenged by the religious leaders at 30 years of age, between 30 and 33, he responded and articulated in manners that those sitting around understood that he had this authority that the religious leaders did not have. He had this understanding of the word of God, of God himself, of the things of God that the religious leaders did not have. Even the common people who seemed so distant from the religious leaders were able to understand through the parables in which Jesus gave the most intricate, deep things of God and understood them at their level and was able to not only understand, but to apply the principles within their own personal life. And as he is sitting there, and as he is learning and gaining and being, uh, being um, challenged by the questions of the religious leaders and responding in accordance, his understanding marveled them all. The word understanding means that Jesus had a grip on the big picture, the context of everything that was being said. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, very interesting, Jesus would preface what he was about to say by stating, you've heard this, but I tell you this. In those statements, he is challenging what is called the Talmud, which was a series of commentaries that the Jewish people, or I should say the Jewish religious leaders compiled in the explanation and application of the law of Moses. It was telling people what the law of Moses meant and how they could personally apply it into their life. It there also then uh, uh, formed what was also called the Mishnah, which was another set of volumes in the same regard. And people became so familiar with the Talmud and the Mishnah that they absolutely forgot the original text of the law itself. It's kind of like our legal system today. We have the Constitution, and everything legally in our nation is based upon the, uh, the Constitution, or supposedly. But yet, when we are told that we need volumes and volumes of books to understand the original intent of the Constitution, we have a tendency to read the volumes of books that are written about the Constitution rather than the Constitution itself. Is that not correct? Same thing was happening with the Scriptures. So Jesus would bring them back to the original, the, the, the scriptures themselves, challenging the, the Talmud and the Mishnah, which had no authority. Again, this was tradition. This was man-made rules and regulations that the religious leaders came up with during the 400-year period of silence between Malachi and Matthew. Jesus challenged these things because he was able to, because he had a big grip on the big picture. And the little fragments that they had, that they tried to put in some kind of a semblance of order, he was able to contextualize perfect for them. And therefore, people not only grasped the, the minute detail, but they got the overall big picture understanding at the same time. 
And that's what he was offering here at this moment. This understanding. This incredible big picture concept. You know, you can read the Bible for years. And you can go through and pick out verses one right after another. But until you sit down and determine to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in one sitting, in one day, no, uh, you're not fully going to understand the big picture. That's why I think it's so important that sometime in your Christian life, work your way through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Get the big picture. Then you begin to understand the details so much more clearly. And as a result, they make so much more sense and therefore their application and instruction to us is much more clear for us. But they were amazed at this. And undoubtedly, Isaiah 11.2 came into mind. As Isaiah wrote, he said, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, that is, the Messiah, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord shall be upon him. And from 12, Luke is saying, This is already occurring. Jesus knows who he is. He understands who he is. He is now sharing the insight that he has as Messiah with those who are the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And people were amazed by his understanding and his answers, verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished, utterly amazed by what was taking place. One of the characteristics of Luke's gospel is that he does a superb job of recording the responses of the people to that of what Jesus says and does. He'll show them in their awe. He'll show them in their amazement. He'll show them in their wonderment concerning their reactions and personal reactions to the events and to the actions of Jesus Christ. So make a note of that. As we go through the Gospel of Luke together, watch how people respond to Jesus. And now we have that not only the religious leaders, but also his parents stand there utterly amazed at what is taking place before them. And in verse 48, in their astonishment, and undoubtedly a sense of panic, his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? You know, here's a perfect example where the parents always think it's the kid's fault, right? I remember one time being in a store called Kmart. Do you guys remember Kmart? Does anybody remember what K stands for? I'll be very impressed if anybody remembers this. Kreskies. Does anybody remember that? Yeah, Kreskies. Okay, you all fail. Um, Anyway. My mom and dad, you know, were always taking us to Kmart. And, you know, again, my mom and dad were always looking for bargains. And Kmart would introduce those bargains within their department store by putting a stand with this blue light upon it. And the blue light would rotate and you could see it from any point of the department store. 
And so, you know, excuse me, Lord, but, but like bugs to one of those zappers, they would just run across the department store looking for the best values, even if we didn't need it. Oh, we saved $100 on this, but dad, we don't need a boat cover. We don't have a boat, you know, and so forth. But we knew Kmart inside and out. So my sister and I, we would, of course, run to the, to the aisle that was the most important to us the toy aisle. And the toy aisle happened to be right next to the fish tanks. And so we would beeline right there. And I'll never forget my dad marching up and down the aisles, yelling out our names, calling out to us. And you could just tell it was like God in the garden. It just we were, My sister and I were hiding, you know, and we just did not want to be found because we knew he was mad. And so he finally finds us and he says, why did you guys leave and get lost? Your mother and I were frantic over you. And my sister looks at him and she was more of a mouth than even I was. She says, dad, we weren't lost. We knew exactly where we were. Where were you? You know, she got grounded that day and uh, so forth. But notice what Jesus says here. Why have you treated us so? Now, we understand her excitement. We understand her uh, concern as a mother. Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. But in verse 49, he says to them, Why were you looking for me? When we come to verse 40, we have to understand verse 48 to understand verse 40. Their distress, their concern should have been curtailed by an understanding of who Jesus is and what he would be about. I do not believe that Jesus is responding in a manner of reproof or rebuke to his mother when asking, why are you looking for me? I believe it is a simple question asked in a positive manner. Why? Did you not know where I would be? Did you not understand? Because as he then goes on, he clarifies, and there's this contrast that we discover in Luke's gospel between Joseph and Mary and his relationship with God the Father. Do not know that I must be in my father's house. And there brings us to our understanding or the need for our understanding of what Jesus meant by this. I believe, again, in the context of the passage with what is given to us in the Greek grammar, that Jesus is calming her by simply reminding her of who he is and the purpose of his existence. He certainly is contrasting his understanding with God the Father being his true father and Joseph being his legal father. This is in no way of any disrespect towards Joseph, for we see that later in this very text, he submits himself to Joseph's authority as his legal father, but we know he was not Jesus' biological father. 
And as a result, he's now trying to bring Mary and Joseph into a deeper understanding of who he is. The key for us is this, understanding the idiom in which he uses in the second portion of this verse, that I must be in my father's house. How shall we translate that when the original Greek literally means in that of my father? That's exactly what it says in the Greek. In that of my father. In that business of my father, in the house of my father. I think the second better fits the context of the passage. But what did he mean by this? Well, let's understand something. That at 12 years old, he now could interact as a man with people, but at 13, he then was required to submit to the Mosaic law. I believe what Jesus is doing here is he is now stating and positioning himself as the first son of God the Father. As the first son, the firstborn of God the Father, he would therefore uh, assume the responsibility and the role of the elder son to the father. Now, though they are one and the same and we are not diminishing the person of Jesus Christ, we believe that he's 100% God, 100% man. We believe he's the second head of the Trinity, uh, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe he's equal in essence in all ways to God the Father. But we do know that he has now, has from eternity past, always has been the eternal Son, bringing him now to that place in the incarnation where he now needs to be about his Father's business or in his Father's house. I believe that he is distinguishing himself from that of the house of Joseph. For example, in the Old Testament, if you read through, you discover that the eldest of the, uh, the house was there in charge if the master of the house, the uh, dad, was not present at that particular time. And through the Gospels, you read that Jesus is always about his father's business. He's always uh, living in accordance to that position of being the eldest son, the firstborn, the, the only begotten of God the Father. He is carrying that responsibility. I am doing what my Father has commissioned me to do. He is showing that he is now obligated to fulfill that position in which he was born to fulfill. That would lead him to subject himself fully, not my will, but your will be done. And of course, that leading to the death on the cross. And then of course, on the third day, he rose again. As the firstborn of God the Father, he was responsible to him. He is making it clear that he is now responsible to God the Father. He is obligated to fulfill the role of the firstborn of his heavenly Father. In John 10, 24 through 26, interesting statement. Listen to me. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now notice what Jesus says here. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. 
you should clearly understand by the works in which I do that I am my father's son, that I am equal in authority, I'm equal to him, I'm the firstborn, I am the only begotten, I'm the only one who can make such a claim. They should have noticed that because their culture was saturated with that illustration and example for them. They should have fully understood that the firstborn had to carry himself and, uh, and lead his life in a certain manner to be obligated and respectful to his father in whom he was in subjection to. I believe that's what he is saying there. I believe that he is now declaring to everyone that my role as a son must be first and forth, uh, first and foremost put forward by my relationship to my heavenly father. And in verse 50, you see that they did not understand the saying. Now they didn't fully get it. Now remember, the, the profile of the Messiah was so distorted and skewed by this time, the religious leaders had it so backwards that no one through their profile could have understood Jesus being the fulfillment of the prophecies because again, they were leaning on the tradition of the religious leaders' teachings rather than the original scriptures themselves. Joseph and Mary obviously did not fully understand what he meant by this when he said this, but he went down Nazareth and was submissive to them. He acknowledges through that submission that Joseph is his legal father. And his mother, that is Mary, treasured up all these things in her heart. She kept them there and began to file them away, to chew on them later, to watch as he grew these things unfold before her. Though she didn't fully understand it at the moment, she kind of filed it away in her mind and in her heart and watched to see what would take place and how this would truly manifest itself through the life of her son. But as he has stated, that he must be in his father's house. One of the chief aspects of the firstborn was to steward the wealth, the property of his father properly. I believe that's what's manifested when Jesus comes in and he turns over the money changers' tables. What does he say? This is a house of prayer. This is my father's house. You have made it a den of thieves. He is watching over the true value of the temple and therefore when he saw the money changers in the manner in which he did, he rebuked them for his son should have as he stewarded those things that were his father's. Interesting dynamic and let us consider that as we continue to push on through the gospel of Luke. And as she put these things and cataloged them in her heart and treasured them up and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and with man. The word increase there means that he matured. He continued from 12 to 30 years old, and that's where we'll pick up the story again. And in those years, between 12 years old and 30, we don't have anything recorded for us. 
We believe that he had continued in Nazareth. We believe that he had continued to uh, honor his mother and father, that he grew as a carpenter under the tradition and trade of his father, that he grew in wisdom, bringing the knowledge that he had and everything together in practical application. Stature means his physical growth. And with God and with man, favor was found with him. In Greek mythology, there are often times that the gods of Olympus would visit the people in one form or another to dwell amongst them, to understand them, and to interact with them. It is interesting that Jerusalem was saturated with Greek ideologies and thinking prior to Jesus' coming, his first coming, and as a result, the people of Judaism would have been very familiar with the Greek manner of introducing uh, individuals who are great, such as the gods of Olympus. Luke seems to be playing upon that, showing that from the very beginning, at age 12, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. And though Luke writes so intriguingly concerning the humanity of, Luke, uh, of Jesus, he never diminishes the deity of Jesus by doing so. And showing us this incredible insight gives us the, the knowledge that from at least age 12, he had understanding of his true identity. But there's something that is often missed when individuals travel through this particular text of Luke's gospel. And I think it is one of the greatest insights to personal growth. I believe all of us need to grow personally in a four-dimensional way. And if any one of these four dimensions are stifled and hindered in any way, we are going to grow up in an uh, unhealthy balance of life. Three of them can exist, but not truly thrive without the fourth. For example, in our text, we found that Jesus grew in four different dimensions. He grew mentally, that is in wisdom. He grew physically, that was in stature. And he grew socially as he gained favor with men. These three can be experienced and we can grow within as individuals. However, though, apart from this fourth one, we are going to have great difficulties in doing so. And that fourth one is that he grew spiritually in favor with God. An individual who is not saved can grow mentally, physically, and socially. Unfortunately, they are growing in those three dimensions from the position of the fallen nature. So as they grow up mentally, and and mentally here what I'm saying is that they're taking the knowledge that they have and applying it into action which we would call wisdom. Of course, that knowledge is going to be the knowledge of this world, and they're going to grow in that knowledge, and they are going to practice that, apply that knowledge as so, and then they're going to continue in the wisdom of this world. They can grow physically apart from the spiritual aspect. They can grow from a child to an adult individual, and they can grow socially with individuals. Again, 
their social growth from that perspective will be based on the fallen nature. So you understand how people have difficulties growing mentally. You can see why people would have difficulties growing even physically. And we can see how people certainly have difficulty growing in socially within relationships from simply deriving from their fallen nature. It's the fourth one that is so key. When an individual becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, the fourth then becomes, comes into play, and that is to grow spiritually. Before the rebirth, we are spiritually dead. And therefore, everything that we do mentally, physically, and socially is coming from that position of being spiritually dead. But when we become born again, and the Spirit is rebirthed within us through regeneration, and we become a follower of Jesus Christ, the Spirit has the capacity to bring the other three in subjection. So when I can continue to grow as a believer mentally. I grow in the wisdom of God that begins with the fear of the Lord. When it comes to growing physically, I understand that my physical growth and physical appetites must be suppressed by my knowledge of God and His moral standard for my physical existence. And thirdly, to grow socially. I can grow socially now from a spirit, from the place of a spiritual rebirth that is no longer growing from the point, let's say, of selfishness, but selflessness. And you can see how different an individual will grow from that point. We are going to fail miserably if we rely completely on the knowledge of this world and the wisdom of this world. We're going to fail miserably if we look to develop relationships within the social understanding of our personal society, which is truly covered by me. Even physically, even physically, people are struggling in their physical health due to their, their mental insecurities and uncertainties. They're struggling physically. But when we add the fourth spiritually, then we can grow as God would want us to grow and therefore becoming the man or woman God wants us to be. Ultimately, that is what Jesus was saying here. I am fulfilling the role of the firstborn in my father's house and I'm becoming the man that my father wants me to be. And you see this thread of development through all four of the Gospels. As Jesus continued to subject himself to the will of the Father, and he said, it's my Father who I have come to work for. I do the works of my Father. It is the Father who is working in me. You cannot have the Father without me, or me without the Father, etc., As a believer in Jesus Christ, God wants us to develop in all four dimensions. As a parent, as a parent of a child, I look to all four of these as my personal responsibility in the assistance of raising my child. How is my child growing spiritually, first and foremost? How is my child growing physically, 
How is my child growing socially? And socially as a believer, understanding my social relationships are based upon my moral understanding of who God is. For example, you know, I'm a law-abiding citizen, not simply because I'm a citizen of the United States of America, but more importantly, because I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. I'm a law-abiding citizen because God says to be obedient to the law enforcement of the land in which I live. You see that? Trust me, I'm doing my taxes right now, not because I want to, but because and therefore socially growing. Socially growing from the perspective of the ability to be selfless, from the position of humility rather than a pride. Growing socially that I may humble myself in times that humility is required and needed. And not to say that one in the world cannot do this at times, but for the overall, for the consistent or the majority of time, it will be survival of the fittest for the individual apart from God. Today, we focus a lot on the physical health of our children or the mental health of our children. And that's important. But I truly believe that the spiritual has to come first. And when the spiritual comes first, then the others can be dealt with accordingly. Mental wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, clearly stated in Scripture. The physical health of an individual is therefore determined by the health of the individual mentally and spiritually. In the sense of this, Individuals and deprived of certain physical capabilities because of their spiritual position and because of their newfound faith in Christ and their new position as a new creation in Christ can find ability apart from their physical ability. I think of Joni Erickson Tata, right? And the powerful ministry she has from that wheelchair that she herself admits which she would never have if it weren't for that accident so many decades ago. Now, when she gets to heaven, that wheelchair won't be going with her. Praise the Lord for that. But do you see how the spiritual overcame the physical, you know, the inconsistency or the weakness of the physical? We must consider all four of these dimensions in our parenting as to our children, not just one or two, but all four. And I believe that you will be a much... uh, more consistent parent by doing so. And I believe that's what Luke was writing for us here in verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He grew, he matured. He became the man that his heavenly father wanted and desired him to become. And I believe that's what God desires for us, to become the men and women that God has required of us. He gives us the ability through the Spirit. It's not something we have to conjure ourselves, but it is something we have to be conscious conscious and aware of. Growing spiritually, meaning growing in our knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ, comes through our reading of the Word of God. We must be in the Word of God to grow spiritually. 
And I'm going to emphasize this over and over and over again. Coming on Sundays and Wednesdays isn't sufficient for your personal development. Obviously, you eat more than just two days a week. Some of us eat more than just three times a day. How do we believe that we're going to grow spiritually if we're only feeding ourselves twice a week or once a week for one hour? Won't happen. We need to be in the Word of God, feeding our soul, feeding our spirit, and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we are going to be able to develop this fourth dimension. The mental, the physical, and the social will develop one way or another, but the spiritual we must be conscientious of. And we must, as believers in Jesus Christ, feed the Spirit to overcome the flesh. And the only way to do so is to read the Word of God.